grumpy but accurate, I think, to some extent. All right, before we get into God's words, let's dismiss our kids now. Four through fifth grade. Four years old through fifth grade, you're free to go to your classrooms. All right, well, for actually, let's pray before we get into uh, God's word here. Um, Holy Spirit, pray that you would fill this place, fill our hearts and our minds, that you would open us, that you would certainly work in me so that only what you want said would be spoken. Uh, Lord, that this issue of control would come to a point, the point for each of us as individuals where you want to meet us and that in coming out of it, Lord, uh, you would be king, that you would be firmly placed on your throne where you belong, where you deserve. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the King. Amen. All right, well, for the next three weeks, we're uh, asking the question, everything is awesome? And I hope the irony is not lost on us. The series title comes from the Lego movie, you saw a clip earlier, in which an entire population is duped into thinking that everything is awesome by a society which is in fact not awesome. The people are actually slaves to a set of detailed cultural rules. But because the system produces what they want, they willingly submit to it. At the opening of the movie, our hero actually narrates some of the rules, which are listed out very specifically for us as he navigates his way through his artificially awesome world. Um, always use your turn signal. Park between the lines. Uh, drop off the dry cleaning before noon. Read the headlines. Don't forget to smile. Always root for the local sports team. Always return a compliment. Drink overpriced coffee. Everyone watches the same television show, listens to the same inane pop music, and follows all the cultural instructions because they have come to believe that doing so will get them more of what they want. Now, sometimes Hollywood is just dead on in their depiction of culture, aren't they? The Lego movie universe is a carbon copy of our own in so many ways. In our collective effort to get more power, more wealth, and more pleasure, we have enslaved ourselves to a set of values and behaviors. Now, this is not particularly new to 21st century America. Uh, in order to get what they want, in fact, every totalitarian regime throughout history that's ever oppressed people was at some earlier point in their history celebrated by those same people as the Savior. Woo! Thank goodness! Here comes Nazi Germany to save us. That's how it was in the 30s in Germany. The Bolshevik Revolution. Finally, our saviors. Even the people of God in the Old Testament. Even though God clearly told them not to install a king, that a king would use them, abuse them, and enslave them, they wanted the power, the wealth, and the pleasure that came along with having a king more. And they got all of it. Power, wealth, pleasure, abuse, enslavement, misery. You see, in every case like this, there was a point in the process when the people began to get nervous. Maybe you're nervous. I'm a little nervous. They looked around and began asking themselves, is everything awesome? The very things they hoped to gain, the power, the wealth, and the pleasure, were starting to move out of reach rather than coming closer. They turned to the power structure that they had erected, the emperor, or the, the fuhrer, or the supreme leader, or whoever, and they began to ask, well, wait a minute. Why is this not paying off like you promised? 
But the unique thing about the empire we find ourselves in, the one we live in now, is it's very decentralized. There's no one place to look to as a cause. There's, there's no real head to cut off this thing, even if we wanted it to end. We're more like the Lego movie than we are like, say, Syria or North Korea, a couple of despotic, you know, little teeny empires. We're, we're more like the Lego movie. In, in the case of North Korea or Syria, you could take out one or maybe a dozen people and the whole thing would collapse. It would just fall apart. But in the Lego universe, we collectively make up our own authority structure. The power to change does not lie with one person anymore. No single person can change it because each of us is a little carbon copy of the bigger society. Like little Lego people, each one of us containing a picture of the whole. And you can see it played out in this election cycle. We think we're choosing a leader who will bring change, establish vision, lay out a plan, and then take us there. But presidential politics have long been simply a reflection of what the culture wants. We're simply shopping for a hood ornament to put on the car that we design, we build, and that we drive into the future. The candidates, all of them, that you see on the news every night are not truly leaders. They're mirrors reflecting back to us our own image. So, while human societies have always been faced with the paradox of enslaving themselves to make some sort of progress, Never has there been a more elaborate, self-constructed, illusory kind of slavery than the one we live in now. We're so invested in the success of this endeavor that we lie to ourselves to keep the system propped up and functioning. The emperor has no clothes. But each one of us is our own little emperor. Everything is awesome! <laughs> we smile through clenched teeth teeth at each other while we're alternating inside between terror and depression on most days. It, it's true. The data are in. For example, the Gallup World Poll conducted in 2008 shows, granted, a direct correlation between income and happiness, but only among those who were recently impoverished. Kind of makes sense. You're destitute and poor. You get some money. Ta-da! You're happier. Kind of makes sense. But interestingly, it does not hold true for any of us who've never experienced any real poverty. More money never makes us happier, and it never has. Uh, a, a real recent study from the University of Michigan came out. It's just fascinating. It shows beyond a shadow of a doubt, the more you use Facebook, the sadder you get. The more depressed you get, the more you use Facebook. It's not supposed to work that way. Because everything's awesome, right? Facebook is that. What's going on? Now, these are just two brief examples of countless studies, surveys, and research, which, granted, are subject to interpretation. So let's combine it with our own experience right here in Snohomish County. Just think about your life and the life of your neighbors, your children, your parents. Is everything awesome? Are people happier, healthier, smarter, and more loving than they were a generation ago? We were promised more joy, more purpose, and more peace if we just followed the rules, and focused on the three big goals. Get more power and control in your life, get more stuff, wealth, and status, and follow your pleasure wherever it leads. So the question is, has it worked? Has it worked? I say no. 
I say it has not worked. In fact, I believe that the path to joy, purpose, and peace is the opposite of control, wealth, and pleasure. And I believe it for two reasons. Number one, Jesus Christ said so. And number two, I'm experiencing it. Let's look at this issue of control with the time we have uh, left today. Now, our own version of the Lego movie universe, you know, they have all their rules laid out. They're numbered. So rule number 47 in our universe is grab control of everything you can and hold on to it at any cost. Get control and hold it. Rule number 47. But you know what? There are other voices that are calling us in the opposite direction. Let's listen to a few of them. Here's one. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Peter Forsyth. One step forward in humble obedience is worth years of study about it. Oswald Chambers. It's a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. B.J. Miller. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan. Finally, your attitude should be that as the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul of Tarsus. So here's the question. Is it possible that in order to find that elusive joy, purpose, and peace that we all want, that we must surrender control? Is it possible that the opposite of control is what's actually needed? Paul specified the opposite of control here in this Philippians passage. And it's humble obedience. You see those two words? Humble obedience. And Paul bases this on what he learned directly from Jesus himself. Who said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the Jesus paradox. And we must begin our understanding of the Jesus paradox right here. Losing your life is not first about death. It is first about saying yes to everything that God asks of you. Let me say that again. I want you to soak this in. Losing your life is not first about death. It is first about saying yes to everything that God asks of you. It's about surrendering control through humble obedience. It, just obeying isn't enough. This is a both-and proposition. Just obeying isn't enough. You just obey, guess what you wind up with? A Pharisee. Read your New Testament. Jesus was not kind to the people who were obeying the rules. You, you could obey God's rules with the spirit of resentment and anger. Anybody ever met somebody like that? Go to church. 
I mean, just obeying without humility, well then, you're resentful and angry and grumpy and all wound up, and then where's your joy and your purpose and all the things that you, you thought obedience was going to lead to? It doesn't exist. Why? Because you're not humble. And, and you can't just be humble. I mean, you can acknowledge God's holiness and your sinfulness, and you can be really humble, but you could refuse to follow His rules, which were laid out for you to bring joy and happiness. And so you don't follow the rules, and where's your joy? Where's your happiness? Where's your peace? It's got to be, it's a both-and proposition. Humble obedience. And here's the deal. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's not in our nature to be humble or to obey. The Bible says that it's part of humanity's fallenness. The, the, the $25 theological word for it is sin. We are sinners. We don't want to be humble. We don't want to obey. Everyone struggles with it. And friends, it's getting worse. In fact, I would argue that at its core, our culture's downfall is our decaying view of humble obedience. When it comes to any authority figures, all authority, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Think about it. Among the most notable mantras in our day are, nobody tells me what to do. If it feels right, do it. Trust your heart. Really? Yikes. Do what's right for you. And one of the most insidious phrases is this. You can be anything you want to be. We have now abused three generations of young people with this patent lie. This usually well-meaning phrase has become so ingrained in our value system that we have lost sight of how completely irrational an idea this is. That's how desperate we are to gain and maintain control. But here's the hard truth, friends. You can't be anything you choose. You don't choose your identity. You simply don't possess the power to be other than what you were made to be. You made no decisions on the day you were born. None. You were an unwilling participant in your own birth. It's ridiculous. None of the choices, the circumstances of our birth, our families, our physical, emotional, or cultural world are up to us. We choose very little about the circumstances of our lives, and we don't choose how we die. Yet within a few years of the birth of our children, we begin lying to our toddlers, telling them that they can be whatever they want. This is not teaching humility. It is, in fact, teaching the highest kind of self-involvement. You can change your name, your hair, your clothes, your style, your home, your job. You can even get all kinds of surgery to change your body. But it can't change who you are, who you were made to be. All of those changes that I just listed are literally cosmetic. It's an image. It's an act. We mistakenly think, here's why I, I think this is going on. We mistakenly think humility is thinking poorly of ourselves. It's not. Humility is thinking clearly about yourself. But because we have these ideas mixed up, thinking poorly about myself or thinking clearly, because we have those mixed up and no one wants their kids to think poorly of themselves, well, parents increasingly fail to teach their kids humble obedience. 
Because we, we really want their self-esteem to be intact. So we say, well, you go do whatever you want. When that's, that's not true. It's not true. In fact, I've observed two styles of parenting which exclude humble obedience. By way of example here. First one is what I call undisciplined. Undisciplined. This is based on the false proposition that your child is fundamentally good. <laughs> and, and the child should be allowed to follow any impulse that grabs him as he benevolently explores his world with innocence and wonder. This, of course, leads to the essentially sociopathic child who roars through restaurants, grocery stores, and wedding receptions, wreaking havoc and laughing as their hapless parents follow around them like a chicken with their head cut off, wondering why no one ever wants them around anymore. You seen that? I've seen it. That is uh, an example of undiscipline. The second, or excuse me, um, Sorry, I lost my place. Computers, right? The result of this particular undisciplined style is that humble obedience is non-existent. It just doesn't even exist in the child's world. It was never, it was never introduced. But by far the more prevalent style is pseudo-discipline. It's characterized by the following phrases. You may have heard this. Or else... I mean it this time. Do you want a spanking? Give me a minute. One, two. Do you need a timeout? How many times have I told you that? My favorite. Mommy, 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 mommy. Mom, don't interrupt me, mommy, 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 mommy. Now, these kids are also roaring through life with little or no sense of consequences straight toward an adulthood, totally unprepared for the humble obedience that will be required of them. Because remember, like Bob Dylan said, they will serve somebody. And that's why we've got, in large part, a whole group of people who show up with a boss who says, do this, and they go, why? How come I... What? In this case, humble obedience is a joke with this style. With the pseudo-discipline, humble obedience becomes a joke. Speed limits, littering laws, parking tickets and taxes, <laughs> those are for chumps. The teacher is a buffoon. Mom and dad, they're irrelevant. And the boss, he's an idiot. <laughs> God? You've got to be kidding. You can usually predict the humble obedience level of a child just by watching the parent. Where humble obedience is valued, here's what you'll see. Steady, consistent, and unselfish expectations are explained to the child without emotionalism. Natural and proportional consequences for disobedience are carried out every time and without fail, even if it costs the parent, which it usually does. And the whole process is wrapped in unconditional love. That kind of parenting does something amazing. Here's the key. That kind of parenting leads to the child trusting her parent. And therefore, because the child trusts her parent, she will willingly obey her parent, rather than simply tolerating them or fearing them. And therefore, 
that willing obedience, that child carries with them into adulthood, and they can learn to willingly obey God, who then promises through that all the blessings we want out of life. You see, humble obedience is based on trust, not fear. And fear is the first roadblock that we're going to talk about to humble obedience. Fear. Andrew Bonar said, It is not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver that is to be the standard of humble obedience. In other words, we can obey God if we know that he is good. But we frequently disobey him because we don't trust that God really has our best interest at heart. However, that's not the case. There's a well-known passage of Scripture that many have memorized over the centuries to help them remember this fact. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God says, For I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And people have committed that to memory because they know that, that, that the lie about God not having their best interest in heart will be assaulting them. Because we know we have to be reminded that God is for us and not against us. And that's how we find our way to obedience. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We obey because we love a God who is for us. The Bible says we love because he loved us first. But see, we too often look at worldly examples of authority in all their corruption and abuse of power, at their ineptitude and their greed, and we project those qualities onto God. But if we truly believe him to be the God he claims to be, the God of perfect love, then we can trust him with our obedience. Second roadblock, self-delusion. Studies have shown time and time again that we are terrible self-evaluators. We're really not good at this. Uh, one study showed only 2% of high school students believe that they are below average leaders. 98% of them think they're awesome leaders. My favorite, 25% of drivers believe they're in the top 1% of driving skills. <laughs> Something not right. Tens of thousands of people show up for auditions because they think they have a real shot at becoming America's uh, uh, top model or American Idol. People show up thinking they're, they're really going to win. And have you ever met someone who did not think they had a sense of humor and good taste? Everybody thinks they have a sense of humor and good taste, but it's not true. Some people don't. This bias towards self plays into our lack of humble obedience because we're pretty proud of our humility. We're pretty proud of how humble we are. Just ask me. My excellence is only exceeded by my humility. We think we've grown beyond the need for humble obedience to God. We know better. In a sense, we're above all that now. Humble obedience is like training wheels for your life. Or we've found some clever way to justify our arrogant disobedience. Ah, we beat the system. We've found the loophole to humble obedience that no one else has found. As a species, we rarely look into our own motives with a burning, critical eye. It's the, ah, it could never happen to me syndrome. It plays itself out tragically with drug abuse, driving too fast, 
other unhealthy behavior. Humble obedience is for the other guy. I'm the exception. I get it. I can handle it. Just this once. Third, anesthetic is a roadblock. Anesthetic. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Did you catch this? Suffering is productive. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. Suffering is productive. But what happens to that little formula? Think about it like a math problem. What happens when you pull suffering out? It doesn't work anymore, does it? Hope at the end, let's see on your side, hope at the end of the equation, you can't get there when you pull suffering out of it. When you blunt it with anesthetic. When humble obedience means suffering, we will often put a barrier up between us and the suffering. And in doing so, the whole, the whole journey to hope starts to fall apart. And we, we're risking a lot when we do that. One of the biggest dangers, for example, uh, for diabetics is the loss of sensation in their extremities. When they can't feel pain in their feet, when they can't obey the pain which exists to tell them that there's a problem, the pain which tells them to go seek help, well, the problem gets worse until sometimes a limb is lost. The pain was there to produce action on their part. In life, we can turn almost anything into an anesthetic. Almost anything. Something which we purposely use to block pain. Certainly drugs and alcohol, but also sex, relationships, money, even religion. When we use things to avoid pain, we miss a built-in motivation to humble obedience. And by the time we get humble and realize that, wow, we really need to obey God, by the time that happens, when we've anesthetized ourselves for so long, sometimes there's irreparable damage that's already been done. We're blocked from the way to true life. Fourth, final, is discouragement. It's a roadblock. Let's face it, all of us sometimes find ourselves peering through the window at the life we feel we should be living, like our face pressed up against the glass, like a street urchin looking through at a deli, hungry, wondering how we could ever access all that plenty, and we sigh heavily and wander off into the snowy night. Oh. Right? Because the honest, average person is going to look at the humble obedience that God requires, and we're going to feel that it's entirely out of reach. So we, we quit. We give up. It's just not doable. Some of us then just play at humble obedience. We just pretend with no real hope that it's going to lead to anything. Again, go to church. That's what a lot of church people do. You see it all over the place. They're just playing at humble obedience. But let me tell you a little secret that can help you when you encounter the roadblock of discouragement. Here it is. Discouragement is a weapon used by your enemy, the devil. Discouragement is a weapon that is deployed against you by the devil. And it's effective. Have you ever heard of Tokyo Rose? It's the name associated with many female radio announcers uh, from Japan who, during World War II who broadcasted from Japan, but in English. Why would they do that? 
to discourage the Allied troops. Rose would regularly tell GIs that the war effort was failing. Things were going badly. There's no hope. Remind the GIs that, ah, oh, your girl's back home, probably dating somebody else now. Tell them constantly that they would fail. Now, why would the Japanese Empire put so much effort into something like that? Because it works. Discouraging your opponent makes it harder for them to fight. So think about this now. If it's an effective strategy and your enemy is deploying it against you, there can only be one reason. He's scared that you're succeeding. When you find yourself engaging in humble obedience and discouragement comes, it's because you're getting it right. It's because you're doing something right. So here's where you deploy what I call spiritual judo, which I know nothing about judo except this. You kind of look like this. And, um, and, and one of the principles in this is you use the power, the energy of your opponent coming at you, you turn it against them. You take their power and you, you turn it against them through the techniques that you learn. So spiritual judo is coming at you with discouragement. Oh, but that's good news because I'm humbly obeying my father. Boom, you just, you just took a shot at him. You just turned his discouragement around into a positive thing for your own humble obedience. Because he's going to come at you with it. This is stupid. You're never going to do this. This doesn't amount to anything. Has it really created any real change? All those voices. Hey, you, you take a shot, but I know who God is. And you're, you're coming at me because I've got you on the ropes. You're scared that I'm going to actually obey God. Keep it up. Just two more things to remember about humble obedience. Humble obedience does not lead to exaltation. God does the exalting business. It's not our job. Despite what the world tells you, no. Humble obedience leads to humiliation. Yay! Humiliation! Now, there are teachers and authors and preachers out there who are making money hand over fist and they have thousands of followers who have rallied to them because they teach that humble obedience leads to prosperity. But we must understand that humble obedience is not a currency. We don't use humble obedience as, a, as an exchange with God. It's not like we come up to the deli counter at God's deli and we go, oh, hi, Lord, um, I'd like four pounds of peace of mind, and a couple of slices of joy, maybe a half pound of... What? What? Humble obedience? It seems a little pricey. That's not how it works. Your humble obedience is not part of a transaction with God. Listen carefully. God does not and never will owe you anything. You can do nothing that will obligate God to bless you. You cannot pray hard enough, believe hard enough, you cannot obey or humble hard enough to cause God to dispense what you want. God does not exalt based on your humble obedience. He exalts based on grace, His grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Remember our Philippians 2 passage where we started? Let's pick that up again where we left off at verse 9. Remember it goes through Jesus humbling himself. 
And right here at verse 9, it picks up, Therefore, because, Jesus humbled, because of his humble obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Catch that clause there. Therefore, God exalted him. Even Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, in very substance God, did not exalt himself. Simply put, humble obedience is expressed trust in the authority that you're obeying. Humble obedience is you manifesting trust. It's, trust is a concept, it's a thought, it's an idea, except when you obey. Then trust becomes real. You can see it when the authority is obeyed. The trusted authority is obeyed. Humble obedience leads downward. It puts you in a place where you can receive. It puts you downstream of God's blessings where you can drink it in rather than at the top where it's dry and you can't access it. Years ago, during the early years of Allen Creek, there was an older woman who was part of the planting team. She's got to be over 100 now. And I remember her teaching me how to pray at one point, Mildred. And I remember this vividly, uh, in part because she had arth the, the arthritis fingers, you know, the really gnarled fingers. And she told me that for years she had been in the practice of sometimes going to prayer with her hands in this p position to just illustrate the condition of her heart. That she's clinging to something, that she's grabbing at something, she's trying to control, she's trying to possess something. And then she would just breathe deeply and slowly turn her hands into this position to receive. This is over the top. In the position of authority, this is beneath humble obedience. By maintaining your grip on control, wealth, and pleasure, your hands are too full in order to receive the true life. You've got to be below God receiving what He's giving you rather than above your own life trying to exert control. Your hands are too full here to receive what you're asking God for. He might be dumping it over you in bucket loads. It's just pouring over your hands. Because you're crying. Turn up. Turn your cup upside down. My cup's empty. Well, here, kid, turn it this way. Oh, <laughs> that works pretty good. <laughs> By maintaining your grip on control, wealth, and pleasure, your hands are too full. Here's the last thing. Humble obedience is best thought of in small doses. It can be overwhelming to consider trying to maintain humble obedience for an entire lifetime, or even for a week, or for some of us, the next five minutes. It's hard to think about it. So just think about what God is asking you to do next. Just next. That's it. Stop thinking in life, lifelong terms. Oh, I've, I've got to stop sinning. I've, I've, got to, I've got to give more. I've got to, I've got to volunteer. I, I need to be a better person. Stop those big, broad, brushstroke thoughts and think in terms of really teeny, tiny increments. Think of hum humble obedience in terms of immediate commands. Before you get up from your chair in just a few minutes, before you even turn around, decide right now to humbly obey God in the next thing he asks you to do. Touch. Speak. Be quiet. Give. Be still. Pray. Fast. 
help. Just be ready to humbly obey in this moment. The next moment will take care of itself. And the next, and the next. Just the next moment. AC3, you may have come to this installment of this series expecting a tight little cultural commentary and a few Bible verses to consider in your study uh, over the, the next week, but I'd like to raise the stakes. I want you to not think about this talk as just a, just a, you know, a, a nice little talk in, in the rest of the series. And I want you to think about this in terms of global change. Let's raise the stakes a little bit. What would happen if a group of Christ followers took seriously the command to be humble and obedient and began living it out in their everyday context? What, what would happen if we, took, we really took this seriously and we lived moment to moment in obedience, which interestingly, read the Gospel of John and you'll find that's the definition of how Jesus Christ lived. I don't do anything until, I don't move until the Father tells me to move. I don't say anything until he tells me to speak. That's the definition. What if we lived like that? What if a group of people lived like that? I predict that it would be a spectacle. They would, they would, that group of people would stand out like light in the darkness, like a city on a hill. They would stand in stark contrast to everything around them. Look around at our world, friends. We are dead center in a culture that values neither humility nor obedience. People are trained to value themselves, their rights, and their own choices above everything else. We are increasingly a society of self-promoters who perceive any requirement to subject our wills to authority as an injustice. We are offended by almost anything and we declare it in all caps for the whole world to see. We sue each other. We demand policy changes. We boycott and we bully. We demand to see the manager. Equal access, equal outcomes, accommodation, special treatment, and special status. Yellow traffic lights are now a nuisance inhibiting my travel rather than a safety measure. We blow through them at 100 miles an hour. We pay our taxes. We pay our cable bill. And I paid five bucks for this coffee and by God, I'm going to get what I deserve. Now, imagine in the midst of this insanity, a few quiet, smiling people content in knowing that God is in control and living like it. Content in knowing that obeying Him brings real life. Calmly, calmly, effortlessly navigating their simple, humble lives, and as they do, catching the attention and curiosity of all those who pause for a moment to look at that light. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be moving in each of us in whatever context we are in, in however you created us to become more like that, people of humble obedience. It's going to look a little different for each of us. Some of us go off to work on the flight line. Some of us go into the classroom. Some of us will be in the home. We will be in many different contexts. But each of us can look very similar in terms of this humble obedience, this light, this peace, this calm that comes from knowing that 
the true and right king is on the throne. That it does not all depend on us. God, may we be that kind of people so that the world will know that you are God. We humbly obey in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thanks for kicking off this uh, series with his friends. We are going to pick it up next week, and we're going to talk about wealth and stuff, that sort of thing. But stick around for extended.